This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, it's great to be back here again and to uh, see many uh, familiar faces. We're in the middle of a series, I understand, in the book of James. So if you turn with me to James chapter 3, James chapter 3. And let's ask God to uh, help us to understand his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us. And we ask, Father, today that we would think about our speech as we listen to your speech. Please, Father, change us, change our hearts, that we might be those who have your word living out in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you experienced the uncontrollable evil? The uncontrollable evil. Sounds like something from a horror movie, doesn't it? But no, what we're talking about is the tongue. Listen to these succinct descriptions of this evil tongue, this evil monster, this evil goblin from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11. Whoever derides his neighbour has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Proverbs 10. The wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. Chapter 12. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Whoever would foster love covers over an offence, but who repeats matters separates close friends. Some people are human satellites, aren't they? Proverbs 25. Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let someone else praise you, and not your own mouth, and outsider, and not your own lips. Proverbs 26, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death, is one who deceives their neighbour, and says, oh, I was only joking. Proverbs 26, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Proverbs 27. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbour early in the morning, you'll be taken as a curse. Ah, bless you, you know, you're coming to church today, ringing up at 6am. Then finally, Proverbs 29, do you see someone who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than for them. That quick reply on Facebook. Ask yourself, as I ask myself, have we ever experienced that evil? 
experienced it in terms of uh, receiving that kind of evil, uncontrollable evil, in terms of some of these things being done to us. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is actually not true, is it? Worse still, have we experienced it by actually dishing it out, giving it to others? Have we been on the giving end of lies, hurtful things, friendship being spoiled? Have we experienced the uncontrollable evil? James tells us that all of us have experienced it. In chapter 3, verse 2 here, you see, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, ah, that man's a perfect man. All of us have failed. Have we not all experienced this powerful evil? It's very powerful, isn't it? Because look at its, its effect. You see in verse 3, it's like a, a bit you put around a horse's mouth, just a tiny little bit, and yet you can steer the whole big horse. Or verse 4, it's like a little rudder and a massive ship, tons and tons of metal, and yet just a little rudder can steer it and direct it. These are fairly neutral ex uh, examples of something very small controlling something very big, having a great effect. In verse 5, the tongue is small, but it boasts of great things. And now it's starting to move towards the tongue, not just being something small that has great effects, but something small that's evil, that has bad effects. For it boasts, starting to lean towards the negative. It has disproportionate power to do harm. A small bit can determine the destiny, the direction of the individual. And so halfway through verse 5, it is now powerful in evil. A fire that is for that which is for destruction. Verse 6, it explicitly links the tongue there, doesn't it, to fire. Chapter 3, verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Tongue is set amongst our members, our body, staining the whole body. You know, a bit of laksa just on your shirt, and like, just a tiny bit, and you can't get it off. The stains there. That little match that cast a whole fireball. We remember the London Tower in Grenfell. In Australia, we have all kinds of bushfires. Just a little spark. Just a little kid playing with a match. And the whole state can be engulfed by many, many fires. The world of unrighteousness. Verse 7, it is something that is untamable. It boasts, who can control this creature? Verse 7 and 8. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. I hate I hate poison and I especially hate snakes. But in the Old Testament it speaks of the tongue being as sharp as serpents and the poison of vipers 
is on the lips of such people. I found this picture on the web. I'm glad I don't have to see it. The tongue is tiny and yet so powerful. Have you ever been bitten? Have you ever bitten others? Well, where is the source of this evil? You can take that slide off, right? It's completely uh, distracted. Have we ever been bitten? Have we bitten others? What is the source of evil? Have you ever been surprised that now what comes out of your mouth? I have. And you think, who said that? You know, did I really say that aloud? I thought it was just my inner voice or... Who do we blame? There's one little phrase I skipped over and there in chapter 3 and verse... Well, where did we skip over? Chapter 3 and verse 6. Just at the end of that verse. This tongue, very powerful, it says ruins the whole course of life and yet itself it is set on fire by... Hell itself, by hell. That of the devil, not of God. It's easy to want to blame God for things, isn't it? Come with me to uh, James chapter 1. Flip back to James chapter 1. It's also up on the screen if you want to look at the screen. James chapter 1. In verse 13 there, it speaks of people being tempted and yet look what they do, who they try to blame. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So you can't blame, you can't point the finger at God. Oh, you know, I had to say those things because of the situation that that God, you put me in. You know, what else could I have said? We tend to blame God. But no, no, you cannot blame God. God has no source, is no source of evil. Not God, but who then? Set on fire by hell. Look at verse 14 there on the screen, James 1 verse 14. No, no, when you're tempted, you can't blame God, but verse 14, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire, when they're enticed. Uh, The word desire is the idea of your, your passion. Then verse 15, after passion, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. A lot of times in our world, uh, the word passion is uh, seen as a positive thing. You know, you go to any interview, you have to say, I'm really passionate about whatever job you guys are offering. Everyone wants to do their passion. You know, it's following your heart. It's doing what you really want. When the Bible, the word passion, over and over again, like it is here, is a word of our passionate desire. A desire that is evil. Passion is a negative word in the Bible. It's our heart, but it's our evil heart. It's our choice, but it's our choice towards evil. That is the source of our evil. And so when this evil is conceived, It leads to sin and then it leads to death. Throughout the book of James, 
He gives many examples of the evil speech we have, but it's an evil speech that ultimately it's the way in which James describes the people themselves. Uh, for example, uh, come and follow with me uh, in your Bibles. Uh, flip back to chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 verse 13. So I just looked through uh, James and looked at you know, all the ways in which he describes people saying things, right? And so chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no one say, when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. See, this is why it's evil, because you're pointing the finger at God, as though he's the one who is the, one who, uh, is the source of evil. You're trying to free yourself from responsibility. Or chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing coming into your church... And notice what the person says. You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit at my feet. See, again, it's, it's um, personifying uh, the person. It's putting what he's thinking in, in words. And it's evil because, verse 4, they become judges with evil thoughts, evil motives, selfishness. I say, oh, you sit very nicely in this nice, comfortable couch. You're right at the front because you look rich. Maybe you'll give lots of money to our church. A poor man comes in. Well, you sit right down there you know, behind the pillar because, ah, oh, who cares about him? Our words betray our heart. Or in chapter 2 and verse 16, chapter 2 and verse 16. And what if one of you says... To them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Again, it's the speech, the saying of people. Hey, you're cold, oh, you know, I'll pray for you. Or be, be filled, and yet you do nothing. Or chapter 4, verse 13, 4, verse 13. Going ahead a bit now, 4, 13. Come now, you who say. Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and send a year there and trade and make profit. It's the boastfulness you see in verse 14. Oh, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You could be run over by a car. And yet in our speech we betray our arrogance. You can go to this city, get this degree, make lots of money. He then is James putting in a very lively way, putting into speech itself. It's a strategy in novels, isn't it? In English novels, you actually put things in speech to describe the person underneath. And so all such evil speech are really describing what is in the person. What is the source of this evil speech? It is the heart of people inside. Remember, Jesus said just as much, didn't he? Remember, he was uh, talking to the Pharisees, and he's, the Pharisees were, were uh, you, know, you, you disciples of Jesus, you're not washing your hands when you come and eat. You're not doing the religious ritual. You're being unclean. And remember what Jesus says? It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, because it just goes into the stomach and then down the toilet. No, no, Jesus says, it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. 
Because out of our mouth, friends, comes our speech. And where does our speech come from? Well, from the heart. And so Jesus goes on in Mark chapter 7 and says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, theft, murder, strife, adultery, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You see, perhaps the tongue is not the real problem. Perhaps it's what's controlling the tongue that is the real problem. The heart, the person, that is the underlying source. That is where the hell comes from. Our human natural condition. Well then, it's been a pleasant sermon so far, hasn't it? What's the context? Why is James speaking so deadly about the tongue? What's the context? Come back then to chapter 3 and verse 1. For the context here is people wanting to be teachers. Not many of you, he says in chapter 3 verse 1, should become teachers. He doesn't say none of you should be, but not many. Why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We should think twice. And then he goes on, verse 2, 4, because, and then comes a description of the tongue that we've just talked about. Not many should become teachers because, friends, the key instrument of the teacher is the tongue. You teach by your words. And so if someone cannot control their words, then what hope is there? You're actually speaking things that you're teaching people that that comes out of the very evil of your hearts. Think twice. The whole passage assumes that there are people in this church that James is writing to who want to be teachers. In the first century, amongst the Jewish uh, society, there are people who love to be teachers in religion, like the Pharisees, like many travelling itinerant preachers who make lots of money, uh, trying to say nice things and, and religious things. And today, it's nice to be a big preacher, a famous celebrity, a famous blogger, a famous preacher that will preach to thousands of people, a famous lecturer. We love those who are educated, we love those who are academic, we love those who can draw crowds and keep crowds right at their fingertips. It's easy, isn't it, to want to teach for the wrong reason. And so James reminds the people, watch out, because you're going to use your main instrument, your tongue, and what is your tongue like? We who teach will come into stricter judgment. But stricter judgment by whom? Look down chapter 4 and verse 11. It is very clear who will judge. Chapter 4 and verse 11. Again, it's still about speech. 
Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Who is the judge? It is none other than God himself. The one who gives the law. The one who judges. And then over in chapter 5 and verse 9, 5 verse 9, it is Jesus himself. Do not grumble against one another. Again, something about speech, grumbling. Do not grumble, chapter 5, verse 9, against one another, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, about to come, because in verse 8, the Jesus, the Lord, his coming is at hand. That is, there is a future judgment, and we need to be account, given account for the words that we say. And so back to chapter 3, back to chapter 3 and verse 9 to 12. Having seen this wider context, James ends off our little section by saying, well, make sure you're not hypocritical. For it's so easy to be double-tongued, isn't it? Chapter 3 and verse 9. With it, with this tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Maybe talking about our singing, but maybe talking about uh, the teachers uh, speaking and praising and blessing the Lord and Father. And yet, another moment, cursing this person and that person. Even though they are actually in the image of God. From the same mouth, chapter 3, verse 10, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? I think the... The fresh water corresponds to the blessing. The salt water corresponds to the cursing. It's the same order, right? The first one's the blessing and then the cursing. The fresh first and then the salt. And then he gives an illustration of illustration. Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Obviously not, right? You plant one kind of seed, you get that kind of fruit. Neither then can a salt spring, can a salt pond Yield fresh water. That is, if your spring inside is salt, is, is cursing, then it can't give blessing. That is, these two things do not belong together. And yet, how come it can come out from your tongue? It ought not. But what is the solution? Is the solution to our passage, well, maybe I just won't be a teacher. But that would be one way, wouldn't it? Uh, let not many of you become teachers. Okay, I'll obey this verse. I won't be a teacher. Problem fixed. Or maybe even, maybe I just don't say anything. Zip my mouth, right? The whole time I'm at church, you know, I put the sticky tape of my name tag over there. That will be okay then, wouldn't it? I won't say anything bad about anybody. Is that the solution? I think these few verses in James chapter 3 and verse 9 to 12 is saying, no, 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 no. Sure, 
you can't from the same mouth give both blessing and cursing. That's so inconsistent. That's so inconsistent. That's so um, hypocritical. That is so double tongue. But more than that, he's challenging us. Hey, a salt spring can't give fresh water. So what kind of spring are you inside? It's a challenge to actually change the source inside, to work at our heart itself, rather than just to stop the bad water coming out. It is about ultimately, not just the doubleness of our tongue, but James is speaking about the double-mindedness of our heart. In fact, the whole of James, I think, is about this double-mindedness People who claim to be Christian and yet they do such non-Christian things. They claim their heart is with Jesus and yet their heart always is running after something else. You see it there in chapter 1 verse 8 coming up on the screen where James says to them, you double-minded, you double-minded. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Come with me. Just to summarise, I presume, the last couple of weeks you've heard, and this will be a good reminder for you. But see the double-mindedness all through this letter. Come with me to uh, chapter 1 and verse 19. Chapter 1 and verse 19 to 25. There was the double-mindedness of hearing the word of the gospel but not doing it. Chapter 1, verse 19 to 25. And then the double-mindedness of thinking that we are religious, godly, but not bridling the tongue. In chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, the double-mindedness of thinking we are holding on to the faith in Jesus and yet... We show partiality and favoritism, preference for the rich, for evil motives, for evil gain. And then chapter 2, verse 14 onwards, the double-mindedness of saying we have faith. But it's a faith that does not issue in doing, in action at all. There's no fruit to show for it. Or in chapter 3, verse 1 to 12 in our passage today, the double-mindedness of being double-tongued, blessing God and yet with the same mouth, cursing men made in the image of God. And in the next section, chapter 3, verse 13 onwards, the double-mindedness of saying that we hold on to God's truth, God's heavenly wisdom, and yet we live out the demonic wisdom of the world in jealousy, in selfish ambition. And in chapter 4, verse 1 and following, the double-mindedness of wanting to be a friend of God and yet flirting with the world. You see, all through, James is saying to these people, you are not acting out. You are being double-minded. You are being doubled heart. Your heart is divided. It is, friends, exactly what happened in the Old Testament, in the passage that was read out for us, or you read out in the responsive reading, remember, there was King Ahab, 
the king of the Jewish people, God's people. And yet he had led the people into sin. And Elijah, God's prophet, comes and challenges the people. And remember he says to them, Today, you've got to work out who are you going to follow. If it's the Yahweh, then follow him. If it's the Baals, follow them. And Elijah says to them, do not linger between two opinions. You see, that's being double-minded, isn't it? They couldn't work out, oh, should I follow God, Yahweh the Lord, or should we follow Baal? They're undecided. So when given that challenge, do you know what they did? They did the Asian thing. They became silent and said nothing. <laughs> and then Elijah challenges the Baal prophets. You know, that sacrifice and, okay, you put all this sacrifice, call unto your gods and let them come and burn up the sacrifice and nothing happens. Elijah taunts the Baal prophets. Maybe he's gone on a holiday. Actually, he says, maybe he's gone to the toilet. You know, but where is he? And then Elijah sets up his sacrifice, puts water over it twice and prays to his God. And as he prays to his God, Look what happens. So come with me. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant passage. Just turn back with me to uh, Eli, um, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. He prays to God in verse 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. He's trying to turn their hearts back to God. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the offering. And when verse 39, and the, when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then they kill all the prophets of Baal. There is the decision that the people had to make. No longer wavering between two opinions. No longer being double-minded. They are challenged to follow God and God alone. Uh, the situation here in 1 Kings is that Elijah had promised no rain because of the sin of the people. Remember the drought. And after this Carmel incident, this uh, confrontation, this showdown, he then says in chapter 18 of 1 Kings and verse 41, Elijah then says to Ahab, hey, you better get up. There is sound of rain coming. And then in chapter, end of chapter 18, the rain actually comes. Friends, I think this passage is in the mind of James when he writes the book of James. For look at the very conclusion of James. Come to James in chapter 5 and verse 17. James chapter 5, the last couple of verses. He's been talking about prayer and he wants us to pray as Elijah prayed. And he encourages us by this story from 1 Kings 18, chapter 5 of James, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will save his soul from death. 
and will cover a multitude of sins. I think that story of Elijah is all through the book of James, challenging the people not to be double-minded. For the people that James is writing to has been double-minded. And James is that person who's trying to rescue those who are wandering away. And so what is the solution for being double-tongued? What is the solution of our, our bad words? It's not just by saying, okay, well, I won't teach Sunday school anymore. I won't lead Bible study anymore. No, no, it's not just by saying, I won't be a teacher. And it's not just by saying, well, I won't say anything anymore. What we need to deal with is the heart underneath. But how can we deal with the heart underneath? Point four. By the power of God's speech. Come to James chapter 1, verse 21, which I'm sure has been focused for you in the past. This is one of the key verses of James. James chapter 1 and verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What's needed? What's needed when our hearts are, are evil like this? What's needed when we are double-minded? What's needed by the people of Israel when they couldn't work out whether to follow Baal or follow Yahweh? We need repentance. We need to turn from filthiness, from wickedness. But more than that, we need to receive the implanted word and this word is able, notice the word able, it is powerful to save, to rescue. But what is this implanted word? On the screen is a couple of verses which describe what this implanted word is. James chapter 1 on the screen, James 1 and verse 18. He, that is God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. It's a word that's powerful, that can actually bring life, bring birth. Verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, blessed is the one. This word is the law. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments, I don't think. It's not talking about the law of Moses. It's talking about the law that gives freedom. What's the law that gives freedom? What is the word of God that actually gives us liberty? Well, in James chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What is this law of liberty? It is the gospel message itself. It is the message of mercy. That's what we who are hard-hearted, who are evil in heart, who have evil words, that's what we need is mercy. A mercy that triumphs over judgment. My father, a couple of years ago, got caught driving, speeding, 
three times by the same speed camera. You think, how did you do that? You, know, you should have known there was at least a speed camera there after the first time, the second time. But anyway, he lost all his uh, driving points. And so they took his license away, they threatened to at least, for six months. He thought, how can I you know, get on with life without my license? So he went to court to appeal. Now, what kind of appeal would you give in a court? Well, there was all the evidence, right? Photographic evidence, his car, his face, he was the one, and the speed. You know, clearly, he was in the wrong. There's no way you can you know, get around that. And so his argument, when his case came up, he went up to the judge, and he said, Judge, the New Testament says that God forgives us by his mercy. And so, please, can you be merciful to me and give my license back? The judge looked at him and chuckled and said, ha, and then took his license away for six months. <laughs> Our world does not act on those kind of mercy, does it? But it's great that God, the heavenly judge, does give mercy. And it's not in some trivial thing like, you know, a few kilometres over the speed limit. It's not on some trivial punishment like six months without being able to drive. It's got to do with our words that are so evil, our heart that is so evil, our hell that we are going to face. God has been merciful to us in not giving us what we deserve. This word, this law of liberty can free us, can give us freedom and liberty, mercy. It can save. It can change us. That's what's called an implanted word. It's like a word that's planted in our hearts that can change us from inside. And that is what we need. But James says, anyone who's actually known such mercy need to show mercy. Remember Jesus' parable? The parable of the uh, servant who owed his master and then millions of dollars in Matthew chapter 18. And he, he has nothing to give. He cannot repay. He just begs for mercy. And the master forgives him so, so much. And he walks outside and he sees the other servant that owes him, you know, a couple hundred, couple thousand dollars only. And he says, you got to pay up. And he squeezes his, his neck and he chucks him in, in jail until he pays up. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's a man who doesn't understand the mercy of God. Friends, if we are those who've been shown such mercy, we are those who need to give mercy, and no less in the way we speak about others. And so there's the challenge, isn't it, of this passage to us. It's a challenge about our speech, but it's more than it's a challenge about all our lives. Are we people who are double-minded as well as double-tongued? That on the surface, looks like we're religious, looks like we've got our foot on Christ, but really in our heart, we know that really we're just Chasing everything that everyone else in our non-Christian society is chasing. We're like the people in Baal's day. We think, we say, 
we are following Christ, following Yahweh, but really we're double-minded and following Baal. Do not waver between two opinions. Choose this day who you will serve. If it's God, serve him. If it's the things of this world, if it's the evil of this world, then serve them. Have a choice. Listen to the word of mercy that can change us, that can forgive us. It should affect all of us, all parts of us, including our speech. At the end of this little story, I was once talking to a Wycliffe Bible translator. And I said to him, well, you know, what's what's needed to be a, a Bible translator? And I expected him to say, well, you've got to know God's word. And you've got to know the culture that you're translating into as well as the language you're translating into, right? Know Greek, Hebrew and God's word and know their language and their culture. Then you can translate. He looked at me. He said, the first and most important thing is that you need to have the word of God translated into your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this challenge about our words, about what we say. And it's so easy to work out that by the way we speak of people, that we are people who are not perfect, far from it. That we are people who need forgiveness, for our hearts need forgiveness. That we say the things we say because that is what we think inside. We are double-tongued because we are double-hearted, double-minded. We thank you for the mercy you give in your word. We thank you for your powerful tongue that is able to forgive and change and forgive our evil tongues. So we ask that that implanted gospel word may not only forgive us but so change us from the inside that we might not be people who are double-tongued and double-minded but that we'll be people who say that you are God and trust and follow you and we ask these things in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.